we spend a lot of time producing, and we spend a lot of time in anthropology in splendid isolation, um, writing our books, getting them published, hoping somebody will read them, and hoping um, that it will be noticed. And sometimes we talk about our work in seminars, um, and so on, but we actually really get the chance to celebrate them. So I'm treating tonight as a, a celebration, a corporate celebration of, uh, of you know, some of the things that we've done. And we do some amazing work in anthropology, and that should be acknowledged. So I'm going to start by just giving you three minutes about this book, um, Evolving Human Nutrition, by myself, Neil Mann and Sarah Elton. Uh, what inspired it? Um, I suppose it was somebody saying, oh, it's impossible. It's a book about, about, about the evolution of human diet, um, but it seems to me there's a missing piece in, um, uh, in relation to uh, public health and medicine. There's evolutionary medicine, which has got a very clinical focus, but actually the, the public health implications of, uh, of, of human evolution are, are very poorly or very little considered. So this is a book about, uh, about exactly that. And they were right. It was a book I couldn't actually write myself. So I got... Uh, two people I know well, uh, Neil Mann um, in Melbourne, in Australia, who's a, a nutritional biochemist, and Sarah Elton, um, who's an evolutionary anthropologist at uh, Durham University now, who was a student of mine a long, long time ago, um, to put together a book that took four years to produce in the end. It's got three sections, The Animal Within, A Brave New World, and Once Upon a Time in the West. So it attempts to take a, a broad you know, sweep, a broad narrative, uh, finishing on you know a number of sort of what we think of as being critical public health issues. So, what was in, what uh, what inspired us to do it? Uh, basically, it was difficult to do. Um, the gap was there, um, and we were there to fill it. So, thank you very much. I'll call on this very elegant man, Ian <laughs> Morley, um, to now tell us about his book. If you come and stand over here, it'll be right next to the machine, Thanks, so the rest of the world can hear you as well. I'm used to standing here as it happens. Uh, call my lectures. Uh, yes, so what inspired this? Well, the prehistory of music, uh, human evolution, archaeology, and the origins of musicality. Um, when I started getting into paleoanthropology and paleolithic archaeology and human evolution, having come from psychology originally, um, which and this was about 1999, I found that lots of people were researching lots of interesting things about the evolution of human cognition, and one thing that had received a lot of focus was the origins and evolution of symbolism, and that clearly related to all these different disciplines. Uh, another area that's related to that was the evolution of modern language. One thing I found, to my very great surprise, was that nobody, it would seem, had taken a kind of holistic approach to trying to understand music in an evolutionary context. And this is in spite of the fact that um, all human societies that we know in the world today carry out something we recognise as musical activities and that the earliest Homo sapiens populations that we have arriving in Europe more than 40,000 years ago, amongst their material culture, one of the things that they produce before we even have any evidence for cave art, for example, is musical instruments. And it's very clear that they were being manufactured and used systematically in ways that we would recognise even at the earliest arrival of Homo sapiens in Europe. And so it seemed to me there was something of a, an issue here to be explained. You know, why is it that we all do music? What is it that it does? How does it affect us? How does it vary between different cultures? But why does it seem to be so deeply embedded in our human lineage? And how much further back does it go than those earliest archaeological instruments? Because it goes back a lot further than that. Instruments only indicate that people are doing it. 
So my idea was to attempt to bring together multiple sources of evidence that were mutually informative, evidence from neuroscience and developmental psychology, uh, language and neurology, um, paleolithic archaeology, human physiological evolution and paleoanthropology, in, in a way that would mean they would be greater than the sum of their parts. Now, people within those individual disciplines have been increasingly, at around, in, in around 2000, people started to do increasingly within their own writings, within those fields, start to say, well, hang on, we think what we're seeing here has evolutionary significance, and we'll start to put it in that kind of framework. But there hadn't been any holistic attempts to bring these things together and rule out interpretations on the basis of mutual exclusivity between what was being found in these different disciplines. So that's what I attempted to do. So that was my PhD that I submitted in 2003, and it's taken about 10 years to um, turn it into a proper book, um, during which time it nearly doubled in size to, to about 140,000 words. Uh, and that's the... That's the the progeny of that uh, particular investment of time. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ian. I think from, from music to dance, uh, LA. So the title of the book is uh, Dance Circles, Movement, Morality and Self-Fashioning in Urban Senegal. Um, the cover is a photo that I took in Dakar in 2003 of a dancer who features quite prominently in the book and whose father uh, was also a dancer. So there is a history to this uh, photograph. Now what inspired me to write the book, uh, the gestation in the first place, and then uh, the work that led to the book, was uh, my own background as an amateur dancer, um, and my interest in the, bo- in the body in social life more generally, but also because I wanted to look at aspects of creative life in Africa. And the continent is often uh, known more for chaos, destruction, for poverty. I wanted to look at an aspect of social life which had more to do with creativity, with experimentation. We never hear about experimentation in connection with Africa. And with the more positive and more constructive things that people do, and particularly in urban Africa. And I knew uh, in Senegal that dance there had a, a history of experimentation since before the colonial period. Um, And I decided to um, focus on a series of contradictions that puzzled me. So there was a contradiction, for example, between the fact that dance was omnipresent in social life. Uh, Anywhere you turn in Dakar at any time of the day, you'll find people engaging in some kind of uh, musical performance and dance. And the fact that it was uh, virtually absent from the literature on the anthropological literature on West Africa, and particularly in urban West Africa. I was also interested in the fact that there was virtually no historical work on dance um, in West Africa, and I can quite confidently say that no African historian has been interested in dance, and in West Africa there are sociological reasons for that. Um, I also knew... um, from having lived in West Africa before, that Senegal was known for the sexual suggestiveness of its women's dances. Everywhere in West Africa, people talk about the Senegalese women's dances as extremely suggestive. And yet this is a deeply Muslim society in which uh, dance in public, and particularly uh, by women, is frowned upon. So I was interested in finding out how it is that people reconcile this tension. And also, another contradiction which struck me was that uh, the idea of performing in public and for a a reward, for money in particular, is linked to the trade of 
uh, status group, a hereditary status group, griots, the griots who are praise singers, ritual specialists, oral historians. So there is the idea that performance, performing music and dancing in public is the trade of lower status people. And yet, most of the dancers, performers that I met were from high status families or from ethnic groups that did not have uh, castes. So I was interested in finding out how it was that there was this huge contradiction between the perception of the status of the performer and who was actually doing it. And also there was a strong nationalist discourse on artistic practices in Senegal. It was all about how we in the nation do this kind of performance. There was an emphasis on tradition. And yet I knew from uh, historical <coughs> work that there was a connection with Europe with uh, North America in the way that a lot of performing practices had evolved. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, a lot of what was going on in the urban dance scene was funded by French money. So that indicated that there was a role of performance in politics and that it might be uh, revealing in terms of Senegal's national politics and also Senegal's relationship to France, to its former colonial power. So. Exploring those contradictions, um, I thought, would lead me um, to quite interesting insights. And of course, it's led me to raising too many questions. And <laughs> perhaps um, the major flaw of this book is that it's going to have too many things and be all over the place. But I hope it will be um, a good read as well and an enjoyable choreography. <laughs> so that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Alain. I think from, uh, from, from dance to space. And Elizabeth Hewitt, uh, to tell us about space and society in central Brazil. Well, there's an odd connection to Hélène's work in that circles matter also to um, the people I work with who build circular villages. It's in my book, Space and Society in Central Brazil. That's what's in it, what it's about. Um, thinking about the inspiration of what led me to write this book... Well, it's based on my doctoral fieldwork. It might help to think a little bit about how I first came to do my fieldwork with Panara people in, in central Brazil. Um, so uh, I was looking for a place to do fieldwork. I was interested in material culture. Um, body arts was um, what I was particularly interested in. Um, and in looking for a place to work, Peter Gao, who was my supervisor then, said, oh, well, have you heard of the tribe that hides from man? Hides from man, that sounds good. Um, <laughs> it's based on, on a documentary that was made in the 1970s by, by um, a filmmaker called Adrian Cowell that documents a process of, of contact with um, people that later came to be known as the Banara. Um, and in fact, the film, it's a very long film, it's three parts, it's nearly two hours long. It ends with um, no contact being made, it's a bit anticlimactic. Um, but by the time I started thinking of working with Panada people, in fact, they'd undergone um, an extraordinary story, and part of um, this book is sort of reconstructing that story, which is the story of many indigenous people in um, South America of contact with national society and, and then um, really tragic um, demographic collapse. Uh, in, in the case of, of Panada, people, that was compounded by the fact that they were then relocated from the area that they were living in into the Shingu Park. And so in the uh, mid-1990s, they had been living there for about 20 years, and they were, in fact, in a, 
extraordinary process of moving back to um, part of the area that they had lived in traditionally. And this was sort of unprecedented. You know, the idea was that you move into the Shingu Park and that's where you then stay. And they complained that you know, nobody ever showed us what happened to the land that we were taken from. You know, we want to go back and see what happened. And they went back and they found that, in fact, there was about a third of the area um, that had been left untouched. And they decided, that's it, we're moving back um, to that place. And they also initiated um, a, a remarkable court case, the Brazilian government, claiming compensation for um, loss of land and loss of life in, in the 70s. So by the time I was going to go and work with, with these people, they were in this process of moving back. And I thought, this is great, because this will be a moment of sort of cultural revival. And you know, if ever there's going to be a time when sort of body arts and kind of cultural practices are going to be at the forefront of people's uh, mind, this is going to be it. Um, it, it. It was in a way, but it took me a very, very long time actually, of, you know, throughout my fieldwork to realise that body arts were at the forefront of Banala people's minds, but not for the reasons that I had thought, not because these were traditional practices that were being revived, but rather they were doing something which you could describe as entirely traditional, which was to incorporate the body arts of others. So in fact, a lot of the time that I spent doing fieldwork was really discussing white people's things and t-shirts and shorts and bicycles and um, uh, paraphernalia of, of um, Brazilian national society, which on the face of it might have looked like acculturation and, and, and loss of um, cultural identity. So what, one of the things I want to do in this book is really to sort of say, you know, what is it from the point of view of, of Banara people that makes those things interesting? What is it about white people's things that are so attractive? And in fact, um, in some ways I relate it back to a very old debate in anthropology, which is Lizzie Strauss's work on dual organisation and, and the, uh, <coughs> the idea that... Um, at least central Brazilian groups can be understood in, form, in terms of sort of binaries, you know, like um, a binary nature and society would be a, a big binary. Um, now, binaries would make it sound as though you're kind of stuck in, you know, in a sort of dual system that doesn't have any sort of logical transformations built into it. And what I want to show in, in the book by looking at space, looking at uh, material culture and so on, is that from within the logic of dual organisation, as Banara people see it, there is a kind of constant forward drive. In other words, history is sort of built in from the beginning. So when white people turn up, it's another historical moment, tragic in many ways, but from the point of view of Banara people, one that, as it were, they can control to some extent. Okay. So <coughs> that was um, the inspiration, really, for writing the book, which has taken much longer to write than, um, that, than one might expect, and part of the reason is sitting at the back there. <laughs> Thank you very much, Elizabeth. I think let's move from rural space to, to urban space. Yep. Uh, Meta Burke, who is uh, with uh, Ben Giddley and Nando Sigona, uh, produced an edited copy of a journal. Journal special issue of the uh, journal Identities uh, on the topic of ethnography, diversity, and urban space. But it will later this year come out as an edited book with a uh, Routledge on the same title. So, um, but anyway, you can you can access it meanwhile uh, online. So, so this um, issue really comes out of as an ongoing conversation between Nando, Ben, and I about how to make sense of urban diversity, also in a context of multiculturalism being declared dead by politicians and of 
scholars and academics not finding multiculturalism a very helpful uh, concept because of the problems of essentialization and reification of, of cultures, and then the rise of the idea of diversity. So that's what we are tracking in, uh, in the volume. They're also uh, discussing uh, how, how useful it really is for making sense of urban diversity um, and noting it's, uh, how, how easily it aligns with neoliberal uh, ideas of individualism. Um, and the uh, volume then has a series of ethnographic um, contributions that look at everyday lived experiences of diversity across uh, a number of uh, both, uh, well, a number of settings in, in London, but also suburb, uh, in suburban settings in a small provincial town in England and across Europe in Italy and uh, France. Uh, and then it finishes with an epilogue by Karen Olvig in which she uh, reflects, further reflects on the usefulness of diversity for making sense of um, uh, this thing that we can call a multiculture, uh, interculture, or uh, diversity. So, yeah. I think one of the things that we tried to do is to look at diversity along three uh, three axes. One was the governance of diversity, the extent to which diversity has become a term co-opted by policymakers and has become a way of narrating society as a second term, so a discursive use of diversity that has replaced multiculturalism, both as a policy but also as a narrative. And then we also wanted to look into what has been called the new age of migration, uh, the emergence of super diversity, somehow also the, somehow the demographic element to this increase of complexity in society in terms of layering of legal status, country of origin, speed, the spread of diversity, of, uh, um, of change and transformation. So the anxiety is produced by this, and this is done within the space of uh, the urban male which is what the literature on superdiversity to focus on, on the, the mega cities or the global cities. So there's this element of bringing in the rural in, uh, which is also from in any way confirmed by the recent data on the 2011 census, that the diversity is spreading all the uh, all scenarios which previously hadn't that element. So that's, this is basically what we tried to do uh, with this. And um, uh, it was quite nice to find out that the, the introduction that me and Matt wrote was uh, the fourth most read article on race and ethnicity in 2013. So it's, uh, despite the fact it came up in October, so in two months, it was quite good uh, <laughs> to find out. This is power of social media, we recommend using it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and we could say, uh, the, um, if you go online and read the article, there are also <coughs> nice supplemental materials, with it, nice uh, photos um, to accompany the articles. So, Thank you. <coughs> okay. Next, we have a, a, a DPhil student, somebody not a student, somebody who graduated as a DPhil here, who's now at the University of Edinburgh, Marissa Wilson, who's written a great book on everyday moral economies, food, politics, and scale in Cuba. First of all, apologies for my voice. <coughs> I'm going to sound like an old woman this many such. Um, what inspired me to write this book really is <coughs> put a mic on the cover. Um, I'm trying to. This sound. But this is a woman's hand, it's a uh, campesina, and it looks like a male hand, but it's actually this woman's hand. And when I took this picture, she said, this, this is a picture of a real worker, this is a hand of a real worker in Cuba. And um, it really was the people that inspired me to write this book, especially because there's very few ethnographies of rural Cuba. And it was a rural area, fairly rural anyway. And um, the voices of these people are really lost and 
have been lost for a long time, especially because of you know the bipolar discourses of the Cold War and everything like that. But we also have new discourses that are bipolar emerging, such as Cuba as this ideal agroecological world um, with very you know solidarity and this sort of thing, which is an idealistic portrait. It's not quite the reality. And then you have Cuba as this totalitarian state, um, and the voices of people are lost in, in that discourse. And so I center in the book on, as I did in the DFIL, <clears throat> on um, this sort of looking at food as, this com as a commodity, as part of the market model, and looking at food as a public good, which is the state model, and how people really have to work as we know as anthropologists, these discourses really do have an effect on material realities. So in everyday life, people must work within these two different economic systems that are attached to two different discourses. But it is very different from the DFIL itself, because I used the ethnographic fieldwork, but it's written for geography, and so I had to, um, when, I applied, when I tried to get the book proposal through with the Royal Geographical Society, um, this, this sounds wonderful, but you're not speaking in geographical terms. <laughs> and it turns out that many of the debates on economic anthropology are very similar to what's going on in geographies of alternative <coughs> economies. And so one of the aims of the book is to make these two literatures come together and to start a conversation between the two. So Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, next. Uh, Nikola Makovitsky, yeah. um, who is an anthropologist outside of anthropology yeah. department, um, who has a book called Neoliberalism, Personhood and Post-Socialism, Enterprising Selves in Changing Economies. I just, um, I've just received these copies, so I, I emailed Stanley, asked if I could sort of squeeze in to this event tonight. Um, in some ways, the book, um, the theme of the book speaks to some of the things that Meta and that you, Marissa, were just talking about. So, uh, on the one hand, it is about uh, neoliberal ideas of individualism, and it's about their impact um, in contemporary Eastern Europe, particularly well, post-socialist uh, Europe, particularly from the 2000s and until now. Um, and the, the inspiration for it, um, apart from... The, the usual recognition of, of a lack uh, of literature. Now, there's a, there is a huge amount of literature on post-socialist transition, on the impacts of neoliberalism in Eastern Europe, um, but most of it is, is uh, looking at um, issues, bigger issues of, of kind of economic transformation, how that impacts um, enterprises or agriculture, um, and the thing I got really interested in was why no one was talking about personhood. There's a lot written about identity, particularly the emergence of new national identities, religious identities, um, uh, but, but very little, little written about subjectivity or personhood. And I stumbled upon um, a quote um, from Margaret Thatcher uh, from an interview in 1981, where she says, economics are the method but the objective is to change the soul. And this really struck home, because this is, this is what's happening, in a sense, with, with a lot of the liberalization reform in, in post-socialist Eastern Europe, you have also a kind of push to change people's souls. 
um, in the sense that you have a push for new understandings of the individual as an enterprising, uh, responsible individual. I'm sure you all, all kind of can recognize this sort of rhetoric. Um, but it comes into a situation where often people do not have the means or are structurally disadvantaged. Um, so half of the book really deals with um, examples from education, from management, um, and uh, from things like self-help courses for people who are unemployed, so welfare reform, and looking at how these kinds of discourses of the enterprising self are being Im implemented um, in different forms in the workplace, um, in welfare, and in education. And the other half is looking more at what I would say was the informal economies, um, and so how people actually deal with this new liberalized um, economy and the realities of often not being able to make ends meet. And I think the kind of question that came out of it, I mean, apart from the sort of obvious links between enterprise, entrepreneurialism, and enterprising self, which is an interesting kind of link. Why, why exactly speak of the person as enterprising? There's a, there's the, I think there's a lot of baggage there um, linguistically. Um, the, the question that really came out is what is the kind of moral difference or other difference between enterprising to prosper and enterprising to survive? And I think that's really sort of the, you know, the, the two sides that, that the different uh, chapters speak to. Thank you very much. Um, so, we've all been informed, educated, entertained, but above all, I think what we see is, you know, a number of crossovers in, you know, possibly unlikely places, and I think this is one of the things about anthropology in Oxford is that we are trying to find ways of finding linkages, whether we work with other individuals in collaboration or whether we work individually but are influenced by our colleagues, um, it's important to, to know you know, what we're doing, even uh, when the inspiration comes from unlikely places. So thank you, everybody.